Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek, and I want to apologize for the state of my voice. I'm still recovering from losing it entirely last week. Here's the show. Very few of us in America are able to provide all the food we eat for ourselves. Instead, we buy things from the grocery store, which gets food shipped in from centralized distribution centers or meat processing plants or distant oceans. The processing and the slaughter and the labor that goes into our food is largely invisible, as it is for most industries, from clothing to computers, and it's obviously not without its problems labor abuses, environmental destruction, carbon emissions. Nowhere else is this more clear than in the meat industry. The Guardian reports that in meat processing plants, workers suffer two amputations a week, and chronic injuries are even more rampant. On the environmental front, a study in Nature last year suggested that Western countries would have to curb their meat consumption by 90%, to avoid dangerous temperature increases and a UN committee has urged the same. Beef production eats up 20 times more land and greenhouse gases than beans, and seven times more than chicken. We're not eating as much beef in America as we were in the 1970s, true, but we've held steady at over 50 pounds per person per year, and beef consumption is rising exponentially in places like Brazil and China. How did we get here? How did having cheap beef become so desirable that we were willing to overlook environmental degradation and worker safety and animal welfare in order for the average American to eat 220 pounds of meat a year? The historian Joshua Specht thinks the answer lies with beef, 19th century beef. In his new book, Red Meat Republic, He outlines how in the span of just a few decades at the turn of the 20th century, American beef production flipped from a small-scale local operation to a highly centralized industry with its heart in the meatpacking plants of Chicago and refrigerated railroad suppliers veining the United States. Ranchers drove westward expansion, but meatpackers soon used the industrial slaughterhouse to outgun them and workers and cows were caught in the bloody crosshairs. In fact, modern agribusiness as we know it today was born in the cattle beef complex, which was centralized, low cost, and meat packer dominant. 
And those meat packers did such a good job of aligning their interests with those of consumers hungry for beef that the system has remained largely unchanged for the past hundred years and created the model for meat production from poultry to pig farming. Not even Upton Sinclair's The Jungle really changed things. As he later wrote, I aimed at the public's heart, and by accident I hit it in the stomach. His criticism of industrial capitalism got drowned out by cries for better sanitation. And, as Joshua Spetsch writes, he hoped for socialist revolution, but had to settle for accurate food labeling. Joshua Spetched, who teaches history at Monash University in Australia, joins us from Notre Dame, where he is a visiting professor. Thanks for chatting with me. Thanks for having me on, Stephanie. What was so surprising to me reading your book was that something that I think of still as kind of a luxury item, red meat steak, utterly transformed the United States. So, I mean, how exactly does beef's effect and the transformation of the beef industry, the invention of the cattle beef complex, change America beyond food and beyond what we eat, what's on the table, what we're buying at the supermarket? Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting question. And I think that when I take this broad approach to thinking about beef, it helps us to think about American society as a whole. Um, so there's a few ways. One is in terms of how it shaped the history of business, right? The, in many ways, the model for a modern corporation, the railroads were real pioneers, but the meatpackers contributed in important ways. And you can see that ongoing effect when you look at the memoirs of Henry Ford, perhaps the most famous industrialist of the 20th century, who said he got the idea for his assembly line in Detroit from watching a side of beef in Chicago being taken apart. So there's these ongoing effects in business. The idea of a regulatory state that controls commodities and things we put in our bodies, not just food, but also medicine, a lot of that comes out of attempts to deal with industrial food. More broadly, or at the broadest level, I also think that this story about beef and ranching fundamentally shaped the kind of society we live in. It's a society in which low costs and, and kind of general access to all sorts of commodities is kind of the, the highest economic good. Now, I think there's a lot of great things about that. You know, there's, there's all sorts of things that give us tremendous meaning in our lives. But that also rests on a lot of human exploitation and a lot of environmental exploitation. And so I think the, the meatpackers helped create that world, and we just need to figure out how to deal with its excesses, essentially. So, I mean, can you paint a picture of what ranching looked like when you first see it in America, in the West, uh, both, I guess, its mythic side and its realistic side, like what it was actually like, and then what it looked like after this huge wave of change. Yeah. So at the beginning of my story, there's a few key things to understand. One is that uh, cattle raising and beef production is largely regional. So it varies a lot in terms of how much meat people are eating, what kind of meat they're eating, and how the system works. But basically, Cattle raising operations kind of, we're talking about fresh meat right now, in 1850 kind of dot the fringes of the country's cities. Um, so you might have them in kind of far out from Boston, say, then you have regional cattle markets like the Brighton Market in Boston. People, the cattle kind of aggregate there and then it goes into kind of a local industry of, of, of butchering uh, both slaughter and then kind of retail butchering and sale for fresh beef. As a result, it's much more expensive. Now, when as you go farther west, there's relatively more beef production because there's more kind of land that's suited for it, and people are eating relatively more beef, but there's still this general trend of 
big geographic variation, overall less beef, and it's more expensive. And ranching is relatively small scale. At the end of my story, ranching has increased in scale greatly, but also just the sheer amount of, of ranches has increased. Uh, you have a national market for beef. What that does is it starts a process of standardization. This market's headquartered in Chicago. People are, as a result, able to eat more beef. So that kind of regional variation disappears. Everybody's eating similar amounts of beef across the U.S., particularly in urban areas, and prices start to go down. So poorer urban residents are able to eat fresh beef frequently, whereas in 1850, they didn't really have access to that. I mean, that's a pretty big period of change. Or, I mean, well, I guess, how many years are we talking about here? Is it 50 years, 60, a century? I would say the action, you know, the action in my story really happens from the end of the American Civil War in 1865 to about 1906 with the Federal Meat Inspection Act. I guess I chose the time period because I believe this is the key period of, of action for this industry. During the American Civil War, uh, in, in beyond the kind of aims and, and story of the war itself, there was a huge buildup of industrial capacity and demand in the Northeast of the United States and in Chicago. So I think once the war ends, it kind of unlocks all of that capacity in Chicago that then gets directed towards the development of a lot of these big kinds of industrial systems. At the same time, the war has fundamentally transformed cattle markets in the South and in Texas because Texas traditionally went to New Orleans. The supply of cattle to New Orleans was broken by the Union occupation of New Orleans and control of Mississippi. So you get all these extra cattle in Texas that have nowhere to go. All of a sudden at the end of the war, all that kind of potential energy in Chicago and that potential energy in Texas gets unlocked. And while there's a lot more to the story of, of ranching and beef than those two places, that kind of helps jumpstart a national system for beef. So I think that's that's why I use that as the start of the story. The end of the story, well, that was a bit more complicated. I could have I could have stopped in 1906. I could have stopped in 1921 with the passage of some legislation that some listeners may be familiar with known as the Packers and Stockyards Act, which tried to think about the structure of the industry. I guess the, the reason I ended in 1906 is because that is kind of the moment, I would argue, where the idea that this system is the way it is and we need to tame it, that's the moment that crystallizes. Before that, people had said, maybe we can just break up this whole system. Maybe we can have a completely different way of producing our food. But after about 1906 or around 1906, people say, you know what, this is the way it is, and we can maybe just try to tame its excesses. What's shocking to me is that so much of that story in 1906, that picture, is really similar to what we see today. I mean, there have been changes, obviously, in the century since then, but it's still really centralized. Beef is still really affordable for a lot of people. Yeah. So I think that's a really important point. I think you're exactly right, and this is what I've tried to argue in the book, is is the parallels between the system that kind of is in place by the early 20th century and today. There are, of course, two major changes, uh, or maybe three, the rise of fast food, the influence of trucking, kind of re-ruralizing animal slaughter, and then, of course, the industry globalizing. But at the broadest level, I think things are, are really similar. And, and the thing I would highlight for kind of a, a lesson or insight for today is the emphasis on low prices to the exclusion of everything else. So in the 1880s, 1890s, when ranchers were being squeezed by the Chicago meatpackers and butchers who were going bankrupt protested against these transformations, they went and they agitated in Washington and tried to get local measures to restrict Chicago's power. And what the meatpackers said is, hey, this is hard on these people, but this is kind of the price of feeding everyone beef cheaply. 
And so what the meatpackers did is they would defend any critique of their methods by saying, we're actually on helping the public good. And this kind of logic that low prices and kind of affordability of meat should justify the structure of the industry and should be the organizing principle, that lasts from 1906 to today. And even today, what you see is criticisms of the food system are kind of opposed by industry actors by saying, well, that will increase prices. And so I think we have to kind of recognize that reality, that this a system kind of predicated on low prices, any change to it will increase prices, and then think about how to both have people maybe eat a little bit less beef, but also make it affordable to everyone with those changes. Yeah. I mean, I want to get to the question of affordability and consumer politics, too, but um, I want to know what was sacrificed. What were the things that the meatpacking industry shoved aside and said, well, you know, prices are more important? Yeah. So this, I mean, it came at enormous cost. So at the beginning of my book, one thing I stress that isn't usually talked about in the history of industrial food or agriculture in the U.S. is the dispossession of American Indian land. Right. So, so it wasn't just railroads moving cattle and meat around the U.S. It was the fact that there was an abundance of land on which to raise cattle. And that was a process of a bloody kind of conflict over who would control the American West and, and other parts of the United States. So that was a cost. Right? There was a human cost in terms of American Indian societies, polities, and people. Uh, there was a labor cost. Right, The disassembly line in Chicago, which, which pioneered you know, taking apart an animal quickly and efficiently, becomes the model for the modern assembly line in other things, that came at a high cost to workers. Workers were exploited. Uh, conditions were tough. Worker injuries were common. So that was another sacrifice. And then there was a, a kind of more complicated human cost to think about, which was the struggles of individual ranchers during this period of industrial meatpacking, the struggle of cattle raisers and other kinds of farmers today. And then, of course, the displacement of, in, in my story, traditional wholesale butchers, the kind of regional actors who were driven bankrupt by the Chicago meatpackers as kind of brutal tactics. Yeah. I mean, one thing was interesting to me was that another central part of that was the reservation system, which was also really crucial to the spread of the beef market and cheap beef. Well, I think the, the, the story is really interesting because I think about ranching as a tool of land dispossession and a justification for it. So it was a way to argue you're using the land legitimately. And if we think about the reservation period, government policy of tolerating or, or encouraging or directly participating in the decline of the bison to near extinction levels essentially impoverished huge populations of American Indians who were then forced onto pretty poor quality land and unable to support themselves. In order to then, in a way, support them, they're given rations of beef that is purchased somewhat generously from local ranchers. So local ranchers have contracts to supply these reservations. And then the, the, the fact that American Indians are accepting these handouts becomes evidence that they're unable to support themselves, and that's further evidence for reducing the size of their land and treating them kind of paternalistically. So it's both materially helping the ranchers in terms of business, but also kind of to them justifying what they've gained. Well, and the conflict between those displaced American Indians and ranchers is one of the first times that the government really gets involved in the cattle beef complex, right? I mean, you outline a pretty friendly relationship between the United States military and ranchers, which seems to set the stage for the state's relationship to corporate power later on. So it wasn't totally a coordinated policy, but I think there was an overlapping belief that ranching was justified in a better use of land than what was happening in terms of the bison hunt with American Indians. And so ranchers would often agitate for military intervention if they thought there were threats to their cattle. And so threats to cattle were behind lots of conflicts, like some episodes in the Ute Wars of the 1880s. 
Similarly, ranchers, particularly in the earlier period in the 1870s, would often work directly with the military. So I would get stories of kind of military expeditions going to look for cattle that had allegedly been stolen from ranchers. Ranchers would ride along with the kind of patrol. They would provide intel. They would provide supplies in terms of food. And so there was this kind of tight relationship between two. Ranchers looked more like soldiers almost, paramilitaries in a way, and the military kind of drew from the insights and intelligence of ranchers. So that's a kind of tight linkage. Now, if, if we move over to production and, and the labor end of the story, which actually we can see in both ranching and meatpacking, state forces also kind of tried to keep order in terms of labor unrest. So I talk about actually in, in the ranching story, an 1883 cowboy strike. Um, Basically, the cowboys say, hey, we're essentially wage workers. We're not being paid well, so we're going to go on strike before the spring roundup. And while the strike kind of fizzles, the Texas Rangers and also other state authorities are getting ready to basically intervene on behalf of ranchers if it, if it turns into trouble. And so there's a kind of implicit threat of state violence. And you see this happening, too, with labor unrest in Chicago. So there's a parallel between this ranch unrest and the meatpacking unrest. In 1886, when you get some meatpacking strikes connected to the broader fight over the eight-hour workday and the haymarket violence in Chicago. You get uh, troops being called to restore order, to protect strike breakers, and to kind of prevent visible signs of protest. This is mostly cheered by the public because they're kind of suspicious of striking workers. And so, again, you get state power siding with the meatpacker's vision of how the beef production system should work. That is, low prices for everyone, even if it comes at high individual cost. So, I mean, what made the cattle beef complex, as you call it, resilient to all of this rancher protest or labor unrest, all of this opposition from all sides? Like, how did it survive? Yeah. So why why is it basically just kind of stayed in many ways the same for 100 years? Basically, yeah. One is a kind of standardization and flexibility in terms of their supply for cattle. So because they can kind of because they control multiple markets, the meatpackers, and they can move goods very quickly, they can draw their cattle from almost anywhere in the United States. So if the ranching industry in Texas is struggling, well, they can draw more from Montana or they can draw more from Midwestern cattle feeders. And so they can kind of jump around. And that really means that any kind of local disruption gets kind of averaged out in that national system. And so that's a big part of their power. But the other reason it's been so stable is that beef is really in demand. I mean, I was expecting, you know, before I knew about this topic, that the meatpackers had to go and kind of convince people to eat beef all the time. But the kinds of people who were living in the United States in the late 19th century, recent immigrants from Europe and their children, they wanted as much beef as they could. And that became a kind of evidence of their success in America. And so there was this kind of ongoing demand. So they always had business. And they came up with a good line in the face of their critics, right? Those critics I mentioned before, the ranchers who were upset, the butchers who were going out of business, the meatpackers said, hey, we're giving low prices to everyone, even the, as they said, common laborer can afford, uh, you know, a porterhouse steak or at least a round steak. So this is justified. And so that good kind of account and justification is accepted by the state, which helps stabilize this whole system. It's really interesting because that focus on cheap prices puts the focus on the consumer, which is something that comes up again and again in terms of changing policy or changing industry. Um, consumers, you know, voting with their wallets. But you argue that red meat ironically sort of shows the limits of consumer politics, that you can't actually change things by maybe 
buying less red meat or buying the right kinds of meat. Yeah, well, I think this is this is something I, I believe pretty strongly. Um, one is that I would say consumer politics is extremely effective in in a couple ways, but they're very specific. It's really good to an extent at securing sanitary regulation, and so that's what I see in my story. When people became really worried that their that the meat they were eating was contaminated, they actually secured state action very quickly. Now, I would argue that's because it serves the interests of industry; they want people to trust their food as well. But I think that's very important that people can actually mobilize. Similarly, around price, people care so much about beef that if it gets too expensive, protest becomes very powerful. Right? They're really good at. I talk in, about a meat riot in 1902, where people would start smashing windows and go to almost any length to secure cheap beef. But if people are successful in basically getting prices they want, and they're not worried the food is going to poison them, well, then it makes them. It, they care a lot less about the overall system. They aren't thinking about exploitation of laborers. They aren't thinking about environmental impacts. And so, oddly, consumer politics is so effective at getting people the commodities they want at the prices they want that it kind of blinds people to the rest of the story, and it makes action very difficult. Similarly, because the industry is so successful and so kind of totalizing, alternatives become almost impossible to find, and you get the emergence of niche alternatives. You get people able to get kind of organic meat or locally raised, which then has all sorts of problems of price and scalability. So I think that consumer politics can channel certain kinds of energy, but it really has to be guided into broader political action because of the sheer size of this whole system. So if one of the big environmental rallying cries from the past decade, even longer, although it's louder now, is to eat less meat, um, especially red meat, because it requires so much to produce and yet cost so little, we're bearing very little of that environmental or even social cost. So how do you make that happen if it's not going to happen by eliminating like a $3 hamburger? Well, first of all, I mean, I, I endorse that view. I think people people need to be eating less beef. But I think we also need to recognize that it's enormously meaningful people to people. They like the taste. Uh, people are often too busy to think carefully about their food. They often can't afford to think about their food. And I think that's where we need to start to turn the the low prices justifying everything on its head a bit. We need to think about changes that are going to increase prices, right? We need to think about changes that will force some of those costs to be addressed in terms of animal welfare, in terms of worker rights, in terms of environmental impact. And the price of beef will start to go up. That will make people eat a little bit less, but obviously people still need, you know, you can't just force make something unaffordable. That's one of the lessons of my book. So I think we need to pair that with a broader understanding of kind of economic justice. So in this environmental change and economic justice that will make people better able to afford better produced meat really has to be part of the total solution. I think you're right that you can't just force the industry to take up all these costs of its impacts without thinking about that effect on consumers as a group of people. So I want to expand the lens a little bit and look beyond America mm -hmm. at the rest of the world and how all of these policies, cheaper meat, a centralized network has been exported. Where do you see this notion of the red meat republic in America expanding outwards? I mean, I can think of Asia, for example, where people are drinking more and more milk in China and eating more and more red meat. But are there other places? And, and I guess in what ways is it exported? How does that work on an international level in a totally different environment? Yeah, so I think this is a really fascinating part of the story. Um, I think you're exactly right about Asia in terms of consumption. Another key place in the story of beef is, is Brazil, uh, the largest kind of beef processor 
currently uh, is JBS, at least as of a few years ago. Um, so, and that's a Brazilian company that actually acquired indirectly Swift, one of these Chicago meat packers. And so, the story of Brazil and the expansion of beef production there is really important important to the global story. As is, as I, as you said, consumption in Asia, and I think both of those reflect kind of the ongoing effects of the story I tell about the United States. I think this linkage between success, economic progress, and beef, that model is being exported worldwide. One of the reasons meat consumption is so important to the rising middle class around the world is this idea that to be successful is to eat beef. That kind of relationship to meat that really took kind of solidified in the U.S. as as I talk about the democratization of beef, that's really important. I also think this model of large-scale centralized industrial beef processing and expanded beef production and that low prices are kind of the key, that model, which is being used in places like Brazil, really shows that stamp of that those kind of American ideas. And so what I see in, in the 20th century, in, in a way, is the globalization of the American model of industrial food, particularly beef. For more on how meat made us who we are today, check out Joshua Spech's Red Meat Republic, a hoof-to-table history of how beef changed America. We've got a link to an excerpt in the show notes, as well as some related reading. We, and hopefully my voice, will be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.